we welcome all of what you're going to do as we listen to your word being read, as we listen to your son bringing the word that you've put in his heart. And as our hearts listen and our hearts hear what you are saying to us, we say yes to you, Lord. Amen. Amen. We're going to have the reading now. Jonah? Uh, Yeah, the readings, Acts 2, verses 1 to 21. There are big words, so if I get it wrong, I apologize in advance. When the day of of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all our people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Prophesy. Uh, prophecy. Uh. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs on earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you. That was very well read. <laughs> right, Giles, would you like to come up? We're just going to pray for Giles now as uh, he brings the word of God to us. Yeah, Father, thank you for Giles and thank you for his heart for you and his hunger after you. And Lord, I want to ask that we, we together, all of us together, ask this morning that the words that you have given to him will be spoken with clarity, will be spoken um, because your spirit, your words our spirit and their life. So I pray that the life and the spirit of your word will impact every heart that's listening here this morning, and none of us will remain the same. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to do what you want to do through the words that he speaks to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Right, my job in the, this morning is not to get in the way of what God is already doing. Um, 
It's not to quench the Holy Spirit or to douse the flames. Now, we are small this morning. I don't know why that is. We sort of seem to have a, a strange coordinated seating pattern. That is fine. God is on the move. God has got, given me a wonderful word. I just need to let it out. He's put a fire in my soul. He's given me wonderful words to say because it's mainly scripture. And um, all I need is that it comes out in the way that I know um, God wants it to come out. So I'm going to prophesy at the beginning and I'm just going to um, give you a word that I was given on Tuesday night. So at the um, Network Church Sheffield, the church which we're a part, at the board meeting of all places, um, they decided, since they just voted me um, onto the board um, or, and um, allowed me to, to join them, they felt that they should pray for King Centre. And uh, the word that one person gave was of a volcano. Now, um, what does a volcano mean? Well, to me, it, it means only one thing. I'm familiar with a teaching that talks of um, how we are to experience God. One, through um, excavation, digging into God, through discipline and through biblical reading and prayer. Two, by um, erosion, when basically the, the trials and tribulations of life just expose uh, God under the surface because um, through difficult times we are thrown onto him. And then thirdly, eruption, the one that I generally enjoy the most, where God just explodes into our life. We didn't deserve it or ask for it, but he just does it anyway. And of course, it's symbolism of the Holy Spirit and God's grace erupting, the source of the word coming out of the ground, just like the waters came out in the flood of Noah and the flame um, came down from heaven in the reading that we just heard. So what do you do when you've got a word from God? You weigh it. So I mentioned it to a couple of people. But I also um, thought, well, maybe this is a word for the church, you know, in the coming months. So what I normally do in these situations, I'm a bit of a Gideon. I tend to uh, wait for three com- um, confirmations. Well, I didn't have to wait very long because I'd not uttered it to anybody. And the first words that my son mentioned on Wednesday morning were, and I'll leave the context uh, for you to surmise, his words were, it erupted like a volcano, Dad. <laughs> the first words that he gave to me on Wednesday morning. Then, the following day, I remembered what I'd planned a week before in uh, my period two, year ten class. I was performing a volcano of iodine and aluminium. I've got it. I actually videoed it because I thought, yes, that's definitely a confirmation. And you can watch the video afterwards. Great big plumes of smoke, and it just it sets itself on fire. And amazingly, you activate it with a drop of water. Then, yesterday, Ellie was playing a game in the, in the lounge on her own, and I walked in. What are you doing, Ellie? Why are you climbing on the sofa? The floor is lava, Dad! <laughs> so I took that to be my three 
So, I want God to erupt, not through what I say, but just amongst us. And whatever I say today, I want God to erupt. And I don't want to get in the way in leading this church. I don't want to get in the way of God's spirit. And I'm going to finish with a couple of practical um, comments about how we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit or not to quench the Holy Spirit. And obviously quenching that, you know, directly links to fire. So I don't want to do that. So, you know, give me the sign, guys. If I'm boring you silly and quenching the Holy Spirit, then just give me a nod or a wink or my wife will just go and, and let me know. So what I plan to give you this morning is a quick whistle-stop tour of the Holy Spirit through Scripture. And I know I've already said that I'd do that um, in the last two sermons, but it just come out differently this time, different Scriptures. Of course, the whole of this Bible is the work of the Holy Spirit, and um, the whole of history is the history, it's his story, of the Holy Spirit working its way out. But I just want to touch on some key scriptures, some key moments, some key picture language that helps us understand what God has done over time. And if we can get our idea of what God has done over time and where he is going, then we can join in. So, starting in Genesis, and I, I, I suggest you just listen rather than try and keep up the scriptures because they'll come thick and fast. I'm, I've just written them out to save me some time. Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, and as he banished them for eating the forbidden fruit, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword at the east side of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's that disconnect from the the life that we've been talking about in previous weeks. And enticingly, it's at the east side. Then... We come to Moses in Exodus and the verses that uh, Nikkei shared with us earlier. In verse 11 of 33, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp and his young assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, would stay in the tent. And God would say, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses would say, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. And Moses would say, now show me your glory, Lord. And God would say, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. So where is this place, this tent of meeting? Well, it was a tabernacle. This tabernacle was set up as a huge tent um, at the centre of where the people of Israel met. And it, was, it had specific measurements and specific cloth and specific ornaments, all very culturally relevant to the people of Israel and would perhaps look a little bit odd to us today, but it faced east. Just in the same way that um, the Adam and Eve were sent out of the Garden of, east, uh, Garden of Eden to the east side, the tabernacle faced east so that they would enter through the east gate towards the Holy of Holies in order to convene and reconnect with God. But, 
only the few, the Levites, the priests, would have that uh, privilege to go close to God. And only Moses would dare to see him close up and um, experience his glory without perishing. Then the story of Israel carries on to Solomon's temple. So David successfully returns the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and uh, paves the way for Solomon. And it's all written down in 1 Kings, the way in which this huge and magnificent temple full of gold and the, 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 the highest crafted wood would embellish the walls and it would be a perfect cube. And again, it would house the um, ark and it would be shielded, rather like Emma did during the worship, just drawing the curtain there. It would be shielded by huge curtains that would cut the people of God from um, God himself. And Solomon did a good job in the early days. He, um, he erected the, um, the temple in the way that God and Moses had described and he um, prayed for it to be purified and his reward was in 1 Kings 9 verse 2, the Lord appeared to Solomon for a second time. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. And then he gives some, um, some particulars. He goes on to describe how he would stay there if, if Solomon was to follow God's decrees. And we know that that didn't happen. And it didn't happen for many of the kings of Israel. So we find out that that temple lasted from about 900 BC to about 587 BC. A reign of um, some 400 years until it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar II. And the people of Israel were taken hostage over to Babylon. So we rejoin the story when they've been um, taken away with the prophet Ezekiel, who has that magnificent vision of what the new temple would be. Um, I call it Ezekiel's temple because that's where we see it recorded. Um, But it was Ezra um, and the work of Nehemiah, whose job was to rebuild the second temple. And we read... In Ezekiel 43 verse 1, Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the Lord of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing water, and the land was radiant with his glory. What an amazing image that the actual, the, the, the place of Israel was radiant with his glory, not just the face of Moses. There's a sense in which it's kind of grown. And that's, of course, where we get the picture of the river of, uh, from the temple vision. But first, before that, just an amazing 
um, verse in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 23. Cyrus, king of Persia, no less. This is um, after the wonderful uh, standing up to be counting of men like Daniel in um, uh, the the, uh, courts of the kings of Persia. Cyrus was actually instrumental in... um, setting up Israel again and letting his people return to Israel. Not only that, he, um, one by one, um, it, it was all recorded, all the, all the things of the temple that were carried away after the first temple had been destroyed were itemised and um, you know, an inventory was created and they logged them all out and sent them all back to Israel. And this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. You might be being a bit big-headed there. Um, but all the, the kingdoms that he knew about. And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Isn't that incredible? God used the instrument of Cyrus, king of a completely Gentile race, Um, that was top dog at that time, to do the work of the people of God. And then Ezekiel 47, the river. I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east, just as this church and so many like it faces east. Verse 8, this water flows towards the eastern region, and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. Every month will they bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. So when I thought about a title for this sermon, I thought about calling it a garden, a river, a tent and a temple. But it's not just one temple. We've now just got our second temple. But that river is flowing from a different temple. I can count. How many temples can you count? Just have a think. How many temples can you think there are in Scripture? It's the first temple, the second temple. Let's just test your imagination. Just a quick straw poll. I'll give you a clue. You can do it on one hand, in my view. Okay? Just show me how many, how many think. How many, don't worry, you can, you, can, you can be wrong. How many temples do you think? You can't shout out. I want to see your hands. This is this is called a corporate response, Jeremy. Okay, do that then. Right. Well, I saw three fingers and I saw four, and you're both right, as far as I'm concerned. So the third temple, Jesus. Okay, Jesus left the temple. This is Matthew 24, verse one to two. Left the temple. 
and this is um, the one that we've just spoken of, and was walking away when his disciples called his attention to its buildings. Look, Jesus, they're amazing. Look at these huge stones. This is great, awesome building. Isn't it amazing? Truly I tell you, Jesus said, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Of course, he's talking of a time shortly to come when um, the, you know, they were, they, the disciples were there around the time when um, Herod the Great had spent in a measurable amount of his own riches and the, and the country's riches on improving that second temple and getting it in top nick and restoring it and making it magnificent. He actually, that work was finished in AD 68. The Romans rocked up in AD 70 and completely did uh, what Jesus described there prophetically. They ripped the temple down every, uh, just apart from that one wall that still stands there today. So Je- Jesus knew that the temple was going to be a pointless um, relic. Because in John 2, verse 14, it says, At Passover, Jesus entered the temple courts and found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and and, uh, exchanging money. And he drove them out with a whip. And the Jews said, What sign of authority can you show us? And Jesus said, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Of course, he was talking of himself. And these are words that the disciples recalled later. So Jesus is the temple, temple number three. Matthew 27, verse 50, where Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Emma, I feel like you need to draw that back now. Can you do that for us? Symbolically. I feel you've got to do it. Because that's the nearest uh, representation we've got in this church, that the temple would have been, oh, I, I, I can't remember the, the uh, figures off my heart, but it would have been a similar kind of height. And the huge cloths would have, um, as the earthquake happened, those curtains would have been torn back, releasing the way for God's presence to go out from the Holy of Holies, the the place where no one was to enter but for once a year, out into the courtyards, out through the east gate and out into the world. The Holy Spirit has left the building. But of course, there is a fourth temple. We are the temple. That's what Peter spoke to us a month ago, isn't it? Ephesians. We are being built into a temple. We are a holy priesthood. So, what happens when the people of God, carrying his spirit, exit the building? We get the book of Acts quite possibly the best book in the Bible, in my view. Because it's not the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my, that my father promised. So they knew that something was coming. Something amazing happened as Jesus died. The bodies of many holy people were raised to life and went into the holy city and they appeared to many people. They knew that the, the Holy Spirit was up to something, but they had to wait just still further. Remember last week, we had, we, there was the, the word about hunger. There was that sense in which the, even after all these amazing things had happened, that the disciples still had to hunger and wait. Can you imagine that liminal time between Jesus going up to heaven and then waiting in Jerusalem, waiting in the upper room, praying together as it says they did. But a sense of nothing obviously amazing happening. I was really aware of the Holy Spirit during worship this morning. A real sort of sense of peace, a sense of love, a sense of togetherness. But I didn't see any rush, uh, uh, tongues of fire or rushing winds. Sometimes God erupts in something extraordinary that just blows our mind. And the disciples had to be um, patient. They had to be obedient. They had to hunger in that time as they prayed and fasted. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was God's plan. Because when the river goes over into the Arabah, it freshens everything around it. The Arabah this desert-like trough, the lowest place on earth, was seen as the place um, almost like hell. It's just lacking in life, completely dry, salty as anything. And for that to, to experience life, the, the river of God needs to plummet downhill. It needs to, to go down where there is not life. It's like a gradient, those scientifically minded. If you want electricity to flow, you have a live, you have a positive, and you have a neutral or an earth or a negative. And the more polar opposite they are, the more the charge is carried, the quicker that current flows, the more the power is um, transponded. The same for water. If you want an almighty crashing waterfall, if you've been lucky enough to go to Victoria Falls or Niagara Falls, as I'm fortunate to have gone, there's huge power there because there's a massive difference in height. Sheffield is a good example of that. Go up any river valley and you see the power of the river being put to good work by all the millstones and all the, the weirs that have been built over the years. So you need an imbalance. Then we hear from, from the reading that uh, Jonah gave us. Suddenly, 
a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Tongues of fire separated and rested on each of them. All were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Again, if you watched the news last night and saw those terrible fires in California, you'll know that they were fanned by the desert, hot desert winds. And wind goes from a place of high pressure to a place of low pressure. Do we hunger for God? Do we cultivate a low pressure within ourselves to say, come, Lord Jesus? Well, you can't hold the spirit back. He was let loose. He was out of the building and he was on people. And where do people go? They go to lots of different places, especially when they're sent out by the people of God and by the spirit. So Peter and John, they meet a blind man on the way to the temple and they heal him. Then Peter speaks boldly, just as an ordinary man in front of the Sanhedrin. Stephen, in Acts 6, ends up speaking to the Sanhedrin, despite the fact that they're about to martyr him. He he stands there glowing in glory and speaking eloquently and giving up his spirit. Philip is literally transported. It wasn't a lift, it was a TARDIS, Nikkei. He is transported from place to place uh, in in a miraculous way, a way in which... Even today, there are people um, it, who living in China who can testify to have been moved. Um, brother, help me out here. Brother Young is, um, can testify that he's experienced that himself. Philip casting out demons in Samaria. So already within eight chapters, we've gone from um, Jerusalem to Judea and now to Samaria. And then he rounds it off with... Talk, planting an Ethiopian church by talking to somebody on a chariot. The Spirit guided him to that chariot and he plants a church in, into Africa. Saul is converted miraculously in chapter 9. Ananias is sent to take this murderous man under his wing and to fill him with the Holy Spirit and to heal his eyesight. Cornelius, uh, a Roman Um, centurion receives a vision through the Holy Spirit and Peter gets a vision that he's going to meet Cornelius and enters his house against Jewish law to give the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. So we've already got into the Gentile realm by chapter 10. Barnabas links Jerusalem to Antioch and Paul And then I haven't got time to speak to you of Timothy, Silas, Mark, Lydia, Priscilla, Aquila, as they go to Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Syria, Crete, Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, the whole um, uh, Greek empire. And then on to Corinth, Ephesus, Greece, Caesarea, Malta and to Rome, the centre of the current empire. Boom! It is done! Within a few years, all of this has taken place and there are churches strewn along the way. It's like 
some salt, some coloured salt has just been popped into the ocean. And suddenly, because it dissolves and goes from a place of high concentration to low concentration, it spread wherever the currents take it. It's like light that just explodes the moment the light bulb goes on. You can't control where it will reflect and diffract and refract out to. And we know that that's what would happen. And we know that that's what's happening now because we can see the end game, the end story. Last night, as a little treat to myself, I got to flick over from Britain's, uh, not Britain's Got Talent, um, Strictly Come Dancing, to watch England versus New Zealand. What a match. What an awesome game. But I was watching it in a really high spirit because Naomi had seen a text alert on her phone and she gets a news alert and said, England pull off amazing last minute victory. And I watched this match and I was like, any minute they're going to score the winning try to take them into the lead. And I was all alive like, come on boys, you're playing so well. I know you're going to do it. This is brilliant. And then the last minute try got disallowed. And I was like, but we know how it ends. Come on, it's going to be a last minute kick. And then the final whistle blew. And when they all trooped off having lost, I was like, no, what what happened? And then she reread the the text. Oh, sorry. Said, oh, it looks like it was a last minute victory try was denied. Ah, man, I was gutted. But fortunately, that's not the case for us. We can, we can get revelation out and we can read 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first had passed away. Verse 3, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I am making all things new. Verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty And the Lamb are its temple. And on no days will its gates ever be shut. So we know how it ends. Where are we now? We're getting closer to the end. And we know from the prophecy in Ezekiel, we know that that water miraculously gets deeper and deeper and deeper. It's not like there are other tributaries tributaries coming together to join it. 
It's just God's spirit gets deeper and deeper. And that's what we know through church history. The, the increase in of his kingdom knows no end. And there are a lot of ways of measuring it. You can measure kingdom. You can measure what good stuff has, a, has occurred over these last 2,000 years. You could, you could measure education. You could measure health care. You could measure justice. You could measure the uh, abolition of slavery. All of these things are good and on an increase. You could also look at the number of um, Christians over time. Now, don't ask me how they measure it, but um, you can find sort of rough guesstimate graphs online. Um, And there's one that um, I kind of broadly agreed with, but um, and it goes like this. It starts off um, at Pentecost and it increases exponentially. We know on the first day that Peter preached, 3,000 people were, were baptised. And it increased rapidly for 300 years to the point at which it became the state religion of the Roman Empire. And then, very interestingly, that's the point where it then just plateaus for about, well, over a 1,000 years. Until, very recently last 200 years and at that point it goes up exponentially again and you know you could debate with the scholars and and historians about what those moments are that cause the exponential raise again well clearly it's God the source you could talk of men like Wesley and great revivalists around the world and you could talk of uh, missions Catholic missions and uh, more recently Protestant missions. But there's just one I'd like to point, pinpoint, which is the greatest revival that has come about through the last hundred years, which began as a result of the work of a humble man um, in the Azusa Street revival. Because the Pentecostal revival is quite possibly the greatest one that we've ever seen. And it carries on, in my view, to this day. And it carries on because we are a church, and increasingly churches are churches of the Holy Spirit. We're not to let structures, sermons, leadership, buildings, get in the way of the Holy Spirit doing its work. Sadly, I, I was brought up in, in a church where I was dis, you know, discipled, I thought, very well. But when I got to university, I, I then went back home and said, why didn't you ever teach me about the Holy Spirit? And you've probably got an idea from the, the last few sermons I've done. It's rife. You can't read the Bible without seeing the word Holy Spirit. But I just glossed over it because it had no tangible, obvious reality in the body that I was attending at that time. So, the Bible finishes with these words. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Bride of Christ, the Church. 
Let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. This water is there available all the time. Well, I know we all pray that, you know, God, you, would you come now? Holy Spirit, would you come now? But he is already here. This river gets deeper and deeper and deeper. The only thing that is stopping us from walking in the same power and miraculous ways and peace and love and all the gifts of the Holy Spirit is ourselves and to whatever limited power he has in our lives, the devil. And I want to focus on the bit which we can control, which is ourselves. Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Therefore, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, and every form of malice. And my personal favourite, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Holy Spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, test everything. So, there is an ever-increasing river running through this church and through this nation and through this world. There is an ever-increasing fire burning in our souls, in our church, in our nation and in our world. We need to stop ourselves from stopping it. So I've just put a few little response things and Nick I'm sure, will, will lead us in, in an at response. The biggest single enemy to the spread of what the Spirit wants, I think, working against us, is time. Because we limit time, his time, in our lives. We neglect the Sabbath. We don't put routines in place that protect our time with him. Because the, the world just dictates how we use our time all the time. Devices interrupt our time. Pleasures interrupt our time. Secondly, energy. Energy. If, again, Sabbath, rest, sleep, regular food, eating patterns, all of those things stop us from um, just being on our top form with the Holy Spirit. So, I've got a little mantra that I want you to repeat to yourselves this week. You can write this down on your phone. You can have it as a little pop-up each time the day begins. Or, you know, like me, I've still taken away my little dove flyer from last two weeks, or last week was it, 
just to remind myself about self-control. Eat, sleep, be filled, repeat. Eat, sleep, be filled, repeat. When I'm hungry, I'm grouchy. When I'm tired, I get angry too easily. When I'm not filled, I end up being bitter or angry. But when I eat in moderation, sleep in moderation, make time for the Holy Spirit, don't worry about the moderation, and repeat that, then I'm on top form. And if there's anything about this church that doesn't allow the freedom of the Holy Spirit